Okay. So, uh, that is a massive number of people that have just gone. Anyway, um, there's a lot of kids. Uh, thank goodness I'm not downstairs. Anyway, um, we have been in a little series that's been running through since um, kind of the kickoff of this year. And uh, we called it Until He Comes. And it's really exploring what life looks like in the now and not yet of the present age that the Bible talks about. That there's this time between when Jesus was alive, when he died, uh, when he came back from the grave, and when he's coming back again. And there's this time, that's this time that we live in. Uh, and in this time, how are we meant to live, right? How, what are some of the ways, what are some of the things, some of the postures that we should expect and we should push into as people as we live in the time until he comes. And this is the season of Lent. You probably know that already. Uh, right up until Easter now, we're going to be uh, in the Lent season. And so we sort of thought, well, what would Lent mean in that context? And so this is our second week. Uh, last week, we were thinking about trials as we read the passage that kind of classically kicks off Lent, which is uh, from Matthew as we talk about the temptations of Jesus. This week, we're talking about faith. And uh, I've, asked, uh, um, I've asked Cora if she would read for us this morning. Cora, would you come and read for us? Come on ahead. Would people give Cora some love as she comes and reads this morning? Come on up. This is a reading from Mark 8, 27 to 9, verse 1. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns." Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in the adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Thank you. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. Uh, I was sat watching TV the other night, and um, as I was doing that, I was struck at the sheer volumes of shows on TV dedicated to love, one way or another, okay, particularly 
uh, in the reality TV show sense, just how much of our like evening television is dedicated to love and finding love in one way or another. I think it's fairly fair to say, especially if you work in an office environment and you are like daily talking with people around you, that people in the UK love a good, trashy, love-related TV show, right? We know that lots of you, you know, we, we pray for you often because you're going home and just binging out on trashy love TV shows, right? We know that, right? And that's what kind of goes on. In a review of Love Island, right, one writer uh, for the New Yorker summed it up like this. British people watch Love Island in the way we browse the Facebook pages of people we went to school with, surveying their boyfriends and babies to analyze ourselves through comparison. Does it matter if we don't find our partner funny like Lucy and the near-mute George? How should we react? I don't even know who these people are. How should we react if our partner declines to have sex with us as Curtis did with Maura? You can relate to them, Danny Dyer, the female winner of season four, who has the effervescent personality of a friendly drunk girl in a nightclub bathroom recently told me, it's so addictive. Everyone loves love. Everyone loves love. But does that sound like love? Truly, does that sound like love? The sort of love that lots of us are looking for, that long to have in our lives. Does that sound like love? When John and I got married, uh, we had the usual, like, just got married crisis three or four months down the line when things begin to look a little bit different now that you got married. Joy talks often, brackets, likes to remind me and other people very often that before we got married, right, she would come around to my mom and dad's house because she lived over in East Belfast and, I mean, you don't want to go there. So she would come to our house, right? And, uh, oh, listen to all of that dread in there at the East Belfast love. Anyway, uh, she would come to my mom and dad's house. We'd, like, you know, cook dinner, sit around in the house, watch TV. And then after, after you know, Joy would be like, you know, come on, we'll go and watch a film or whatever. That was fine. So we'd sort of sit down in the sofa and it would be all like PDA, don't care, you know, like coddled up on the sofa watching a film, right? That was kind of how it was. And then we got married, right? And the kind of normal thing would happen, you come home from work, you cook dinner, you go into the living room and we'd be like, stick film on or whatever, something on TV. And Joy would say again, you know, we watch a movie together. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. And I'd be on like one sofa, like sprawled out. Joy would come in and attempt to like cuddle back into me in the sofa, at which point I would get up and take myself off to the other sofa and lie there, right? Because I'm not big into all of that, right? You know, I was kind of looking for personal space. Joy was looking for affection, right? So, you know, we didn't, you know, there wasn't exactly a whole lot of correlation between that all the time. She likes to give me stick about it, right? Because it changed, didn't it? It got different. I would take myself to another sofa. She was devastated. And the thing is, that sentiment is multiplied across lots of areas. When lots of couples get into a committed or a married and, you know, kind of relationship, right? So before you got married, you thought this person couldn't be untidy. And then you find out they're one of those people that has, like, the pile of clothes in the bedroom, right? Everybody, every couple has one. It's either the chair or Joy's favorite is on top of the wash basket. Why not in the wash basket? Away or in the wash basket? You're piling on top of the thing that they're meant to go in. How does that happen, right? Or else people that are really untidy or whatever, family dynamics, right? I thought I was marrying you, not your mother as well, right? You know, those sorts of things that happen in a relationship, right? It takes work, doesn't it? We find out after a little while that relationships take work, to work around differences, to work around personalities, to work around experiences. Relationships take work. We find out that love, when it's the real thing, it needs action, doesn't it? 
Love, when it's the real thing, it requires action in our lives. And it turns out that it's the action that makes it the real thing. Not that sort of action, by the way, just in case. Uh, but love needs action, and action makes it love. And I say that today because it's kind of the same with faith, right? Our theme today is faith. And faith, when you think about it, is a very similar thing, isn't it? On one level, you have the kind of faith is impossible thing, right? Like it's out there, ethereal, transcendent. It's, it's kind of out there somewhere. We believe in something that's kind of beyond ourselves, don't we? The Hebrews 11, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see type of faith. In one way, faith is way out there somewhere. But is that really all it is? Or does faith, like love, take action? That's the question today. Is faith just something that's kind of out there, above it all, kind of transcendent, sort of a little bit weird, kind of can't put your finger on it? Or is faith the sort of thing that requires action? And is it only faith when we give it action? Andrew Walker um, says this, in many ways the word faith has lost its meaning. We speak of faith, but often what we mean is something abstract and fanciful, right? That's the out there bit about faith. Faith is not only trusting Jesus, it also means we are obedient to Jesus. We line up with the will of God, and that shows we love God. We do what Jesus tells us to do, and that shows we trust him. It is a loving, obedient trust. I love that. Faith is a loving, obedient trust. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, too, he put it like this, faith is only faith when it's acted upon. Or if you want one for today's generation, you could use the star of everyone's favorite Christian memes, Bob Goff, when he says, love does, right? Love does. It doesn't just set. Love does. Faith does. Faith requires action. It's only faith when we give it action. So where does this fit within the Lent story that we're sitting in today as we think about faith? Well, we're in the book of Mark. There's 16 chapters in Mark, and roughly speaking, if you want to kind of divide them up, the first eight are basically about Jesus and his life, so it's, it's more about kind of what's going on in his living, and then the last eight chapters are more about death. They're more towards his death, resurrection, and what comes afterwards. So you pretty much have a pretty even divide in terms of, of what's going on in terms of content. And in a world where we put so much time and energy into speaking about God and speaking speaking about Christianity and speaking about church, Mark doesn't do that. Mark's focus is pretty much solely on Jesus. He's, he's pretty much the whole way through, the focus is Jesus. And in more than any other way, it's on his humanity, on the real human life that he lived while he was here on earth. And this particular passage that we read today is a moment. I don't know if when you've been walking around Belfast, you've seen that kind of stickered up art on some of the little electricity boxes. And one of the phrases that it says in one of them is, life pivots on moments. And in the lives of the disciples, in the life of the church, this is a moment. As you read through Mark, this is a moment, right? Uh, it's a moment for them. It's a pivot moment. It's a hinge for their whole lives. Uh, Mark 8, 29 says this, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. That's the moment. It's the first admission or faith statement in the gospels from the disciples as to who they believe Jesus really is. The first time in the Gospels, they utter it out loud. Up until now, it's kind of hints. They're kind of watching things, seeing the incredible unfold before them. But it's the first time one of the disciples say, this is who you are. This is who I believe you are. It's a hinge moment. Everything before is demonstration. Everything before, after it is preparation. This is a moment. And it says some things to our faith 
where we are today and how we walk out this Lent season, right? It says some things. And the two things I want to just focus in on today in this Lent season is that faith means coming to one who is not like us. And faith means realizing that we are not our own. The first thing I think this says is that he is not like us. This is what it says in verses 27 to 33. If you've got your Bibles on you, you can read along with me. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do you people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Every group of friends has that one guy that's just not really like the rest, right? Just that one person who's just a little bit different, right? You know, that one guy. And they're just not like everyone. Like, when everyone is pulling in one direction, they always seem to be going in the other, okay? Or else, like, you know, you're all going out and doing something, and they're kind of not ready. It's that sort of person that's just always pulling in another direction. Northern Ireland, we have a huge range of great phrases to describe them. Different gravy, header, head the ball, mooncat, moonbeam, away in the head, those sorts of phrases. That's what we use to describe these people that are in our friendship groups. Like, they're just on another wavelength all of the time, right? They're just somewhere else. And throughout this first section of the passage, Jesus is making it clear over and over and over again that he is not like us. He's trying to say to the disciples, he's not like us. You can't think of me like you think of yourself. I'm different. And it starts with the sorts of things that people are saying about him, right? This is what it says. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. The thing is, these are big claims, right? Whenever I say, oh, my mate Michael is a moonbeam, right? That's not positive. You're like, oh, probably avoid him, right? That's what you think. But whenever these claims are made, Elijah, one of the prophets, John the Baptist, those are good claims, aren't they? Like if, if somebody said of your life later on in life, he's really like John the Baptist, you're like, I'd take that, right? I mean, you'd be happy enough with that. Oh, his life is just very reminiscent of Elijah. I'm like, yep, yep, I'll have that. They sound good, right? And that's because they were. They were big figures in the faith of Israel. The prophets too, big figures in the faith of Israel. And in lots of ways, the culture of the time, the people were making complimentary statements. Each response is positive and it's affirming about who Jesus is, isn't it? They're good. Those are good things. The problem is they aren't nearly right. They're good but they're not nearly right. They honor him, but they misrepresent. They applaud him, but they deny who he really is. They give him honor. He's like Elijah. I think he's the next Elijah. I think he's a new Elijah. I think he's a new John the Baptist. I think he's like the prophets of old, right? That's honor. But at the same time, they deny who he really is. It's sort of like people you meet today who whenever you really push them on the life of Jesus, say things like, oh, I think Jesus was a wonderful man or I think he was an incredible moral teacher, right? Those sorts of people, they are honoring him in some way, but at the same time, they completely miss the point, completely miss who Jesus really is. So Jesus narrows it, okay? He wants to push them and he said, okay, fine, but who do you say I am? And it's Peter who speaks, and in this case, Peter is speaking for them all because none of them object. So we're assuming that Peter is making a statement that they're all agreeing with. And Peter says, you are the Messiah. 
The thing is, when we hear that term, right, we hear it maybe differently to how they would have heard it then. We go straight to Jesus, right? When you hear Messiah, you think Jesus, you think Savior type figure, don't you? That's where your mind goes. But it was different then. Messiah had hugely political connotations. It meant anointed one. And it was a term normally used for kings or priests in the Old Testament, okay? And so it's entirely possible that calling him Messiah didn't necessarily mean that they were calling him divine. It's entirely possible whenever they said it that they weren't thinking of him as divine. In their heart of hearts, the disciples probably weren't expecting some sort of divine redeemer. They were just longing for a king. Like everybody else, they were just looking around the world, looking at their history. They were just longing for a king. N.T. Wright puts it like this. It's about a politically dangerous and theologically risky claim that Jesus is the true king of Israel, the final heir to the throne of David, the one before whom Herod Antipas and all other would-be Jewish princelings are just shabby little imposters. This claim, this belief was provocative. It was hugely controversial. To believe in a Jesus like that was hugely controversial. In the middle of Caesarea Philippi, where there was a new, right, the new and kind of biggest temple in that part of the world was to the newest pagan god. That was the Roman emperor. You're essentially saying, this guy's king, not that guy. It's hugely controversial. Announcing Jesus as the true king and his kingdom was a challenge to Rome itself. And this was an incredibly unlikely place, right? It's right at kind of the edges of the empire in terms of pagan, as they would have thought it, kind of thought in that time. They're right at the fringes and someone is saying, Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. It's an unlikely place for the name Messiah to ring out. But yet it does. In many ways, if you were a member of the Jewish faith in those days, you had a central agenda for what you thought a Messiah should be, right? You thought a Messiah needed to do three things. Now, there was lots of people that kind of individual things like, I want him to do this or that. But the reality was, you kind of had three things that a Messiah would definitely do. And those three things were this. One, rebuild or cleanse the temple. Two, defeat the enemy threatening God's people. Three, bring God's justice to bear on the world. That's what they expected. Whenever they said Messiah, that's what they were expecting he was going to do. Thing is, that's exactly what Jesus had been and was doing. That's what he had been doing. As Jesus traveled, teaching and demonstrating the kingdom, God's healing energy had been sweeping through the land, bringing about a new state of affairs, arising passionate opposition as well as passionate loyalty. That's exactly what he'd been doing. He was the Messiah, just in subversive ways. He was not what they expected because he is not like us. He's not like us. And even though they may not have necessarily been entirely sure about what they themselves meant when they said it, when Peter utters those words, you are the Messiah, he was making a faith statement. He was standing on something. He was saying something that day, eventually putting words to the stuff that was going on in his heart, the stuff he'd seen. And Jesus' teaching and input changes afterwards, right? So up until now, as I'd said, he'd been demonstrating. He'd kind of been bringing them with him. That's that sort of phase of ministry, right? I do and you watch, right? So they've kind of just been watching him as he's been demonstrating, teaching the kingdom on his journey around uh, the Middle East. But it changes afterwards, and now they're ready to hear about the next stage. You see, it's impossible to develop right faith in Jesus with a wrong view of God. You can't develop right faith in Jesus if you've got a wrong view of God, right? It's not going to work if you think he's just a political Messiah. It won't work. That's why he pushes in now, because they've made a statement that could be roughly thought of as political. It won't work. 
If you think he's just a good person, it won't work. If you think he's just a great moral teacher, it won't work. If you think he's just God out there somewhere, it won't work. So Jesus flips it again, as he has been doing, as he continues to do. He flips it. This is what it says. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You see, they call him Messiah. He calls himself the Son of Man. They want to call him Messiah, but he calls himself the Son of Man. That's significant, right? This is probably Jesus' favorite title for himself. In the Gospels, he uses it 81 times, right? He himself, this would be the term that he probably chooses for himself. It's a title we see originally in Daniel 7, right? And if you want to know what Son of Man means, okay, this is what it means. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one who looked like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's Jesus. That's who he is. That's the one who's not like us. All politics aside, all assumptions that we make, the Jesus that we think he is, the image that we try to hold him up to, that's who he is. And he uses the term because it removes him from a well-formed idea that they had about who he was. So they had an idea of what Jesus was. They had an idea of who he was meant to be. They had an idea of all the things that he was meant to do. And Jesus is saying, I don't do those things because I'm not like you. This is what I'm like but he's still not done, right? He's been demonstrating it all the way through. He's still not done in this section, trying to demonstrate that he's not like us, not like the ideas we have about him, right? And this is what he says then in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Death. He had to die. And this is another way that he's telling them, I'm not like who you think I am. I've got to die. And Peter, he makes the big hinge statement, right? The Peter, he makes the faith statement is the same one he pushes back. See, he was on board with him as Messiah. He just wasn't on board with the cross. He was on board with your king, but not with the cross. Why? Because Peter wanted Jesus, but he wanted him on his terms. How often do we want the same? Peter wants Jesus. He just wants him to look like how he wants. He wants him to do what he wants. He wants Jesus, but he wants him on his terms. Eugene Peterson puts our faith journey like this. It is the discipline and art of training us into a full and mature participation in Jesus' story, while at the same time preventing us from taking over the story. That's the thing, isn't it? You see, Peter wants Jesus to fit his agenda a Jesus he can control. He even tries, right? Peter has, takes the opportunity to try. Jesus, what are you playing at? It says he rebukes Jesus, right? Peter's rebuking the guy who just said, I'm the son of, son of man. He's saying like, no, 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 you're not. You're, you're this guy. You're the Messiah I want. You're the guy that I'm expecting. He tries to control him. It's the one he can conjure up in his likeness. He's making it about him. 
And how often do we do that whenever we come to Jesus too? We make it about us. We make it about the things we want. We make it about the things we need. We make it about the things we lack. We make it about the things we think are wrong in the world or about other people or about circumstances that we're part of. We come to Jesus with our agenda, not with his. See, we can have Jesus. We can have this son of man, this Messiah, whatever term you want to put on him. We can have the real Jesus. We just can't have him on our terms. We only get him on his terms because he's not like us. No matter how much we want him to be, no matter how much we desperately want him to do all the things that we want and change all the things we want and smite all the people we don't like and all of that sort of stuff, we can't get him like that because he's not like us. And here's the question today because it hasn't gone away. Who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? As you sit here today in your heart of hearts, who do you say Jesus is? Really, honestly, who do you say he is? Because that is a hugely, a hugely informative question. I've done a number, uh, as I said last week, a number of personality type profiles. And in the workplace ones, the most interesting ones that you can do are not the ones that you just do yourself. It's the one work colleagues do about you too. And so like that totally false sense of your own self-perception, you know, you get it back because you're like, you know, you're telling your boss, I'm, I'm a really assertive person, make, de- you know, make decisions very easily. And then it comes back and it's like, David is a complete procrastinator, unable to make decisions. You know, you get it back, right? And it actually is much more informative when somebody tells you who you are. The question is today, who do you say he is? What does he mean to you? Because if our lives don't look like his provocative, subversive, upside-down way, if they just look like our lives, if they, the Jesus we come to and expect from and try to control, if our lives don't look like that Jesus that he says in the Son of Man, which Jesus are you following? Who do you say he is? Who are you following? He is not like us. And flowing from that, our lives are not our own. He's not like us, and our lives are not our own. You knew it was coming, uh, this being a church full of millennials and led by a millennial. You knew that sooner or later we had to whip a Kanye quote up on the screens. So this is our moment, right? It's a one-time thing. I'm not going to do it again, right? I promise. But here we go, right? These are a few lines from Closed on Sunday, right? Oh, somebody else is into that, right? Okay. <laughs> It wasn't like that. Nobody went, yeah. No, that didn't happen. Uh, Here we go. Follow Jesus. Listen and obey. No more living for the culture. We know body slaves. Stand up for my home. Even if I take this walk alone, I bow down to the king upon the throne. My life is his. I'm no longer my own. People are literally getting their phones out to take a picture of Kanye on our screens. I'm appalled thing is, all the questions about what's really going on there with Kanye West aside, right? Take that out of the picture, okay? I find this, like, the most moving thing. The first time I, I heard this record put it on, I just found it the most, like, stirring, emotive, moving thing. No matter what is going on, I mean, you know, who he's married to, all of the stuff that's out there in the world, no matter all of those questions aside, he absolutely nails it. When he says in this song, what he's saying in these lyrics, he absolutely nails it in terms of what it means to follow Jesus. He nails it. 
This is what Jesus had to say himself, okay? Verses 34 to 38. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. Kanye West nails it. You want to take this block of text about what it means to follow Jesus? He nails it. And so following Peter's statement, Jesus starts spelling out what it means to follow him, what it's going to look like. And the incredible thing about kind of this part, this part of the scripture to me is just there's no small print, right? So much of the time in life, we try to like bury down the things that might be a bit negative, right? So when somebody says, you know, they come around to look at your house or you're selling your car, they're like, is there any issues with the car? Absolutely no issues, except like you know yourself that like the windows when you open them never close. It leaks, you know, the horn is on 24-7, you know, those sorts of things. Like you, you small print it, okay? It's about like those TV ads for quick quid, okay? So you're like, your boiler breaks or your car breaks down. What am I going to do? It's five days until payday. I'm duffed. Oh, it's all right, though. Your friendly loan people, quick quit. All I need to do is text them and they'll give me up to 10 grand. They're so friendly, so accommodating. This is amazing. I'm going to solve all my troubles. And then you look at the bottom of the ad and it's like APR 2,356%, right? There's the small print. The cost is vast. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. There's no small print with what he says the cost will be to follow in Jesus. There is complete integrity. There's no catch. There's nothing hidden. There's just his way, and his way leads to the cross. So many times, you know, I'd run things like Alpha, and we'd kind of come through courses, and people would have these conversions. They'd, they'd be totally stirred in their faith. They'd be rejuvenated and renewed. People would become Christians for the very first time. And then after about two weeks, you would kind of meet them or they'd send you a text and they'd be panicked. And they'd say, like, I really need to meet. And you go to meet them and they'd say, Dave, like, the thing is, whenever I gave my life to Jesus, I thought it would get better. But it's got worse. They're like, everything's worse. I, I can't describe to you, but like, everything's worse. They're now aware of their brokenness. You know, they're aware of all the stuff before that they thought was fine and now it's not fine. They're aware of the brokenness in the world. People they used to think, like, I used to think he was a decent guy, but now I'm just like, no, he's trying to lead me astray from Jesus. You know, they start to become aware of the stuff that they don't want to be part of anymore, aware of this whole spiritual dynamic that they didn't even think about before in their lives. They come and they're like, it's worse. Everything's worse. What do I do with it? And maybe part of that is, is our fault, you know, because we are basically like, you know, come to faith in Jesus, hope, you know, mercy, grace, fulfillment, your life is better. Actually, lots of things are really difficult. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. He gets it, right? There's no mis-selling the whole Christianity thing in C.S. Lewis's eyes. It is hard. It's hard. But then I don't need to tell you that. Christianity is hard. Those walking through health issues who are still called to hold faith and expectation, it's hard. Those trying to walk out purpose and not seeing where it's going right now, it's hard. 
It was trying, praying to hear God and just getting silence. It's hard. Following Jesus is hard. But thankfully, he doesn't miss sell it. He tells us. And this is the reality. Self-denial. Take up your cross. Follow me. Shorthand, my life is not my own. If I'm going to deny myself, if I'm going to take up my cross, if I'm going to follow somebody else, my life is not my own anymore. The thing is, this is incredibly countercultural in the world that we live, isn't it? This is the age of self. Jesus is actively saying, deny that. The world that is all about self, he's saying, no, it's not. It's about as countercultural as it's possible to be. Because Jesus is telling us to let go of exactly what this whole world is telling us we should focus really intensely on. Donald English spells out the challenge like this. If you clutch your life wholly to yourself, protecting it against all others, asserting all your rights, needs, and privileges, you lose it because it isn't life any longer. Jesus is saying life looks like self-denial, taking up your cross, following him. So often I find when I'm talking to people um, and they're talking about work, uh, the second that they start to say things like, you know, my boss expects this of me, but that's not my job, right? The second somebody uses that phrase, work's dead, isn't it? Passion, the things that you wanted to do, the, the kind of attachment that you had to your workplace, it's dead. The second you start dividing it, cutting it up, saying, this is my job, this is not my job, I don't do that, it's dead. Or when they start talking about the relationships and it all becomes about how he or she doesn't meet my needs, it's dead or it's in trouble. Or how this or that church community just doesn't work for me anymore because they don't do this or that, it's dead. Or when your faith becomes preoccupied about a particular thing, some sort of gift, meeting someone, some sort of position or role, we're clutching and it's beginning to die, isn't it? Because Jesus says it's not about clutching, it's about self-denial. That very thing that we're told we should focus on really hard, Jesus is saying, don't deny it. Take up your cross and follow me. That's where life is. Life flows from letting go. Life flows from realizing that my life is not my own. My life now belongs to somebody else and it means I'm going to have to deny myself. It means I'm going to have to take up my cross, which means some things are going to be put to death in my life. And then I'm going to have to follow him whose ways are not like mine because he's not like me. This is how C.S. Lewis, the same C.S. Lewis who fully understood the cost of following Jesus, right? The one who said port would make him happy, Christianity probably won't, okay? This is what he had to say on the matter. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. There's the challenge. There's the challenge. It turns out in life very often that if we want something, if we go after it with all of what we have, very often when we get it, we find that there's no life in it. Lewis is saying, give it up. Learn to lead a life that is about self-denial, taking up your cross, following him. Jim Elliot famously put it like this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what Jesus is saying whenever he says, you know, what is the point of gaining the whole world but losing your soul? The soul is the bet. And yet our world seems to be fairly intent about going after the whole world to the price of your soul. Jesus says, flip it. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Thing is, it's so easy to come at this question and just look at the, cross, look at the cost, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is saying it's going to cost you your whole life. It's so easy then to go, wait a minute, you just said it's going to cost me my whole life. And the focus becomes the cost, right? Look at what we've lost. But here's the point. We need to pay more attention to who we gain. We need to let Jesus and eternity set the perspective for our lives. It only works, okay? This like denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following him only works if he sets the perspective for our lives. I get how difficult this is, right? I'm not saying this in some like, well, just you all do that. My life's fine. It's not like that. It's really hard. When I was coming to the end of my time at uni, I was fairly certain and confident, perhaps, you know, misplaced confidence that I was meant to be in high level leadership in my life, right? Potentially the presidency. But anyway, that that's, you know, that's what I was going to do with my life. I was fairly confident that I was going to be able to climb reasonably high in some sort of company, make more money than I do right now, and have a very different life, right? That's, that's what I thought my life was doing. That's where I was fairly sure I was going to go, and somewhere in there, those thoughts are still there. It's not like those go away. It's not like that thing, that itch, that kind of wrongly placed direction in your life just disappears overnight. They manifest when I get concerned about the future. Like it's not, it's not as if whenever they put down in terms of long-term job security, it's not like church planter is pretty high up the list, right? Is it? And when I think about long-term job security, right? When I think about things like that, I get concerned. It manifests when I see others getting things that I want or I covet. It manifests when I want comfort, stability, and security. But the more I've pushed into Jesus in my life, the more I've realized that that is not me. The more I realize that that's not what he has me for. When I give my life to Jesus, I set myself to want God's best for my life. And God's best is meant going after the thing that I think he has for me. And I realized somewhere along the line that I had to let go of that stuff because that isn't what he had for me. That might be what he has for you, in which case, good luck. (laughs) But that's not what he had for me. And that brings us back to love. You know, I met so many people who are pretty stuck by FOBO, right? Not FOMO. Apparently FOMO is not so much of a thing anymore, right? The fear of missing out apparently is not so much of a thing in our world anymore. Apparently it's now FOBO, which is the fear of better offers, right? Uh, People are smirking because you know it's true. It starts in primary school like birthday parties, doesn't it? Like, well, I don't want to go to their party because I'd rather go to their party, right? It starts with a fear of better offers. And so often we don't commit to other people, right? But one of the things I sit down and talk with young adults about more than anything is relationships. And so often it's about they won't commit to somebody because there's a fear that somebody like better, somebody hotter is going to come along a little bit after. So they're like, I don't commit to you because somebody else might come along. So they won't do it because there's a fear of the 
the better offer. So they hold themselves back, they clutch, and then you realize there's no life in that kind of cycle that you just go round and round and round. And then here's the thing that happens eventually. These people meet the one, okay? They, they eventually meet the person that they're like, yes, this is it. This is the person I want to give myself to and, and commit to. And then you're all in. You find yourself all in and you haven't even noticed. And all of a sudden, that commitment, that perspective means that we stop even thinking about the possibility of anyone or anything else. Everything else dies and you realize there's life in it, right? Because that's the moment that you realize that there are no better offers. There are no better offers. The fear of better offers goes away because you realize in a moment that there are no better offers. Here's the thing. That's where we find ourselves in following Jesus. There are no better offers. The way of life means death, and there are no better offers. We are giving up our lives to someone with eternity in view. Just like when you commit to that person, it sets the perspective, doesn't it? When you eventually meet that person, you think, I love this person, right? That sets the perspective for your life. You're not seeing or thinking about anyone else because you're going after this one person or else you find you're in a job that you really love. You're all of a sudden not checking, you know, job finder anymore or, you know, you eventually find the house that you think, yeah, yeah, I think I meant to live there. You stop looking at property, pal, because there are no better offers. It sets the perspective for your life. The safe life needs to die. That's what Jesus says. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. The safe life needs to die. And no one can know what it is, okay, to die in your life except you. That's the thing. When we look around at other people, look at what they've given up, look at what it's cost, right? That is irrelevant in lots of ways because that is not your cross. Jesus says take up your cross. And the only way you'll find that out is as you follow him. What needs to die in you, you'll only know as you follow him. Deny yourself. Carry your cross. And those are on me, right? When Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, those are my job, right? That, that's kind of my deal in it all. But it's him I am following. He takes the lead. He makes a way. That's his initiative. 